Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. We're still saying it. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, we are. The second full week. That first like couple days was not like real, I feel. No, I feel like nobody knows what day it is. No one yeah. knows what time it is. Yeah. I feel like the world should just close that week. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's so weird, especially after the holidays. Yeah, being on a Wednesday was weird. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I guess next year will be a little bit easier yeah. being on Thursday. It's just easier to take that, yeah. that day, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Thursday, like Friday week. versus... Yeah. Like half the people are, not even half, like a quarter of the people are in their office. We're in the office. We're no, in, we the were office. in the office. We were, yeah. But I don't think I've gotten responses to 90% of my oh, emails, yeah, no. so that's been fun. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> obviously we're here recording this for you guys, so you better enjoy it. We um, never stopped. Well, I mean, I guess we no, did we do did. a couple repeats no, we over took the a holidays. Break. No, and we needed that self-care. So you guys, this is the part two. Last week you were partaking in the part one of Dr. Tina Bryson and Dr. Yes. Siegel is her co-author. So part one, we really just went on a random tangent, which yes. she indulged us, which was great. <laughs> and then we actually did a part two with her. She She's so busy, but we are so grateful for to her to make time for this part too. So we actually talk about her book, Power of Showing Up. We had already pre-ordered it. And so when we were recording this, we hadn't read it yet. But you guys, it comes out. She's doing her book launch on Thursday the 16th. Yeah. So when you're hearing this, yeah. it'll be this Thursday. Yeah, so it'll be this Thursday. So it's get be, it. Yeah, it's great. You know, she really we have just such a more structured conversation with her. She talks about the four S's that are talked about in the book. So you have safe, seen, soothe and secure. I'm going to let her take it away and explain all that but we just had such a great time talking to her i would and, just and love just her about how like weeks. her s is like it affects every relationship right. not just your relationship yeah. with your child or your student yeah so. and we're still on this how our brain is getting wired mm-hmm. how brains are developing it just speaks to us because of the clientele that we work with right mm-hmm. so we're always fascinated and again very honored to have tina bryson on with us so enjoy this part too enjoy it's a part two. Welcome back. With Tina Bryson. Thank you for coming back for a part two, Tina. Well, you know, we sort of got a little off trail. Because <laughs> we to talk about the power of showing up, but we got so into talking about discipline and the kind of the ideas from No Drama Discipline that we just had to do it. We just had to dig in more and keep chatting. Exactly. And it was a nice tangent. I yeah. And I tend to do that a lot, but... Um, Sometimes it makes for really organic, great conversation, which is, like, what this podcast is all about, but we also want to make right. sure we're getting our audience the right information that we're supposed <laughs> to be. Well, we're really excited for your book to come out because I think it's going to be just a wonderful read for basically any of our listeners. And so we're excited to talk about it. I can't wait to talk about it with y'all. And you know, here's the thing is too, is that even if you're not a parent, it's so applicable because what we do is we really look at 
what we know about how the repeated relational experiences we have in all of our growing up years with our parents, grandparents, and teachers, and then later romantic relationships and friendships, that all of those relational experiences really impact not just what we think and feel, but the actual wiring of our brain and what our brain comes to expect in relationships and how we respond and function in relationships. So this book really helps us kind of reflect on what are our like relational patterns and where did that come from? And then how does that impact all my relationships? And so it's a book that's really for any human who has ever had parents or mm-hmm. whoever has had a relationship. So yeah, but which is everybody, book, everybody. Yeah. So I mean, well, even you- focus on parenting and you know, we can get into the science, but there's also a lot of really good practical stuff too. Perfect. Oh, where to start? There's so much to talk about. I guess we can start with some, you know, basics. You say, you talk about the four S's. Can you go through that to kind of start us off? Yeah, let me start with the punchline of the book. And then the four S's are sort of the, you know, evidence or the kind of, if you're thinking about like a five paragraph essay, right? We got a thesis statement and we got supporting paragraphs. I'm married to an English professor. Uh, Bring me back to high school and I don't like it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So here's the punchline. Here's the main idea of the book. And that is that decades and decades and decades of research done cross-culturally all over the world have shown that there is one thing that is the best predictor for how well kids turn out, no matter what we measure them on. Okay, so that's kind of interesting already because there are a lot of parenting books out there. There's a lot of advice and there are a lot of things as parents neurotically that we're like, oh my gosh, I have to do this and I have to do that. And, you know, what if I don't do this? And what if they don't speak Mandarin and French and English by the time they're nine months? You know, we get into all this kind of hyper-parenting neuroticism. But what the research says is that there's one thing that's the best predictor for how well kids turn out. And that is that they've had secure attachment with at least one person. Hmm. And... What does that mean, secure attachment? So secure attachment is, well, let's start with what attachment is. Attachment is a mammal inborn instinct that allows us to have a better chance of surviving. So if you're like a little bear cub and you hear a scary noise or some predator starts coming at you, you have a biological attachment instinct that will drive you to run to your mama cub, I mean your mama bear or your daddy bear, right? So you run to an attachment figure whose whole job is to help you be protected and safe. Okay. So that's the function of attachment. That's what it's all about is to when in times of distress or danger or when things aren't going well, you run to someone who will help you be connected and protected. Okay. So, and by the way, we should get to this at the, you know, after we talk through the four S's, the best predictor for whether or not we as adults are able to provide secure attachment to our children and give them the thing they need most in terms of optimal development is not based on whether or not we had secure attachment with our own parents. Thank God. Cause 40% of us right. had a more insecure style of attachment. Right. We can uh-huh. talk about those patterns too, mm-hmm. but here's the deal. If we know this is the important thing that we need to have our kids have secure attachment with at least one person, what does that look like? What does that mean? And so Dan and I have come up with the four S's and the four S's are sort of help us think about what does that mean to provide secure attachment? And those are safe, seen, soothed, (laughs) and then over time having repeated experiences, not perfect experiences, but repeated experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed then what happens is your brain actually wires in a different way. So instead of secure, doesn't really mean like, oh, I feel secure about myself, but rather 
my brain is wired to securely know, like deep in my neurophysiology, that if I have a need, someone's going to see it and show up for me. That's what secure is. And then over time, what's cool is that when kids who have secure attachment with their parents or with another person, what happens then is their brain gets wired, having had enough experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, their brain gets wired to not only expect that other people will show up for them, but that they can then for themselves help themselves feel safe, seen, and soothed and do that for other people. So this is even like a generational thing. And it's really a, the big piece of what resilience and mental health and all those good outcomes are all about. Fascinating. <laughs> I have a one-year-old now, a, a toddler, and just even just seeing in person is like, and hearing all this information, and then the more and man and I have just amazing guests like yourself who can just explain it in such a tangible way because you don't really think about this. Maybe you never think about it until you're a parent. Maybe you do because of like the field that you're in. So Amanda and I have always thought about these things in the context of our clients, the child, Mm -hmm. potentially the parents as well, obviously the relationship between them, the dynamic. But now we have a vocabulary to be able to articulate. And I think You know, we can talk a lot, but it's, you know, the most powerful message. And I think just with the title of the book, The Power of Showing Up, that's just easily relatable. Everybody knows to a certain extent what that means, but then the four S's really tie it all together. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when we think about like relationships in general, I think (laughs) most people tend to put them in categories of like our adult relationships, the relationships we have Mm -hmm. with our friends, our family, our significant others. And then the relationship we have with children tends to go in a separate category that we think we need to act differently. But it's really sounding like what you're saying is for all relationships together, they need these components. And so we really should be looking at it as what is going to be providing a positive relationship for anyone is the same thing we would need to do for a child. It's not necessarily something different. We all want to feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure, right? That's right. And it's not even just like that would feel nice, but it's actually like deeply embedded in our biological wiring. It is, you know, our deepest need because, you know, aside from staying alive, which is what the function of attachment is about, it's what we need most. And, you know, when you look at this science, it's no surprise that the studies that looked at like 50 years of data and found that like the single best predictor for how well people were happy and even physically healthy was that they had relationships. They had people who showed Mm -hmm. up for them, right? So this is a mammal instinct. And so, you know, we were talking about dogs before we hit record you know here because we're all dog lovers and you know when my dog gets freaked out she comes running yeah you know and she wants me to be like you're okay I've got you you know like that's exactly what we all need and you know some of us grew up in families where we didn't feel safe and or we didn't feel seen like our parents didn't know us we didn't feel known or they wanted us to be something that we weren't and so they never saw us clearly or they were trying to always kind of talk us out of what we were feeling or they never paid attention to what we were feeling right Right. so we might not have been seen at all we might have kind of grown up more like in an emotional desert where you know the family conversations were always about the weather the neighbors or you know food or whatever we never talked about an internal life at all right or maybe you know 
when we reached out to be soothed, our parents berated us or mm. we were really left on our own to figure it out. And, or when we were upset, our parents made us more upset. So right. we made experiences where we felt safe, seen and soothed and how those relationships played out with our caregivers impacted our own patterns of attachment. So there are these different styles or patterns of attachment that happened in order to allow us to kind of adapt and survive in our families. But that's what's so exciting is, you know, the best predictor for us being able to provide this, you know, the kinds of communication that allow our kids, again, not perfectly, but most of the time to feel safe, seen, and soothed, leading to that secure, is not whether or not we had it, but rather this research is so hopeful because what can happen is even if you had parents who didn't show up for you, if the research shows that if we can reflect on those experiences and say, gosh, my parents weren't there for me, or worse, my parents terrified me. They weren't the source of safety. They weren't a mm-hmm. safe haven for me. They were scary. You know, if, if we reflect on those kinds of experiences and we can talk about and make sense of how those experiences came about, why our parents maybe acted the way they did, what it felt like to us growing up like that, how it's impacted us and our own relationships. When we do that, the research shows it actually changes how our own brains wire and it changes how we're able to kind of show up differently in our own relationships. And so that's really important. And that's why in the book, at the end of each chapter, we do a chapter on each of the S's. We talk about showing up for ourselves. And we ask Mm. some questions like, you know, in what ways did your parents make you feel safe? In which ways did you not feel safe? And I'll just say this, too, because this is, you know, I think, you know, you're saying people don't necessarily think about these things. I think a lot of us automatically help our kids feel safe, seen, and soothed a lot of the time when it's easier to do, like when our kids are, when they're hurt Mm -hmm. or when they're sick, it's a lot easier to sort of muster up that kind of a response. But if they're acting like little hellions or they're being oppositional or they're having a massive meltdown and you're just done, it's much harder to bring the four S's at that time. And so I think, you know, what's great about this is that we don't have to be perfect. And that's what the research shows is that this is just if you do it most of the time. You know, if you just predictably, your kid knows if they have a need, you're going to show up. That's all that is really required. Right. And so how, so I like that you said at the end of each chapter that questions are asked because my question was going to be, how do you suggest people do that? I know maybe some people in therapy are consistently doing this, but (laughs) that's great because I love a good book that is able to bring to light or give me the terminology that I can use to express myself to others, but it goes above and beyond when it gives me questions yeah. and yeah. prompts. I've, I've always enjoyed that, you know, being in a book club and, and there's been a couple of books that I've read where, you know, they'll be like, and here are some questions that you could ask your book yeah. club. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know, because sometimes <laughs> you just, you can't think of the question. You have a feeling about it, but it sounds sounds like you had that two-prong approach where it's like, look, I'm going to give you this information, but then I'm going to give you the tools to really tap into it and use it effectively. Was that the premise behind kind of co-authoring this book as well with Mr. Dan Siegel? Yes. You know, we both have, you know, tons of experience delving into this research and we're both therapists as well. and We're both parents as well. And You know, what's really interesting is so, like I said, this research, it sounds so like scary and daunting at first. They're like, there's one thing you need to do, right? And if you don't do it, you know, oh, it could be bad. But what the research is really saying is 
you know, there are lots of paths of hope that come out of this research. And so and one is this idea of that self-reflection piece. So one of my favorite terms out of this research is called earned secure attachment. And what that means is that you may not have had parents who helped you feel safe, seen, and soothed most of the time. And it might be interesting for us to talk about some of the other patterns and to maybe get a little bit more in depth into what the four S's look like in a yeah. moment with a kid. But, you know, What's really important about this is that if we didn't have that growing up, our brains might have been wired to kind of dismiss the importance of emotions or dismiss the importance of connecting in more vulnerable ways. Or they have had experiences growing up where our parent was really unpredictable or really chaotic internally, and they really couldn't help us calm down because we kind of had to help them or they were too chaotic to really be able to show up for us in ways that helped us rest and feel like we were settled. Or worse, we may have had you know parents that were frightening, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, but what I want to say about the earned secure attachment is... There are different ways to do this. In the research, we call it a coherent narrative. You develop a coherent narrative, meaning you look at the, what happened and you make sense of it and you know take a look at it. You can for sure do that in therapy. <laughs> and in fact, just as an interesting aside, that's actually the, the most essential role and why I think psychotherapy, regardless of the type of approach you use, like if you use more psychodynamic or mm-hmm. if you're more CBT or mm-hmm. you know whatever the approach is, that it's the best predictor for therapy working well is the fit between the therapist and the client. Right. And we can actually measure that in terms of even their heart rates going in sync and their breathing going in sync and mm-hmm. all these things. But what essentially the therapist-client relationship is, is a secure attachment relationship relationship. The Ah. therapist should be helping the client feel safe, seen, Mm -hmm. and soothed Mm -hmm. so that their brain comes to be more integrated and develop a coherent narrative about their past and all of these things. So that's essentially what it is. So you can for sure do it through therapy, but you don't have to. You can also do it through self-reflection or journaling or... (laughs) you know, processing. And that's what we did at the end of each chapter is created some questions for reflection to do that with, you know, one other just interesting tidbit is that the research shows that if you're in a romantic relationship with, let's say you have a more insecure pattern of attachment, Mm -hmm. but you're in a romantic relationship with another person who has secure attachment and they give you the four S's that actually the research shows that after about five years, you start earning your secure attachment and you start being able to provide those four S's. And so this just reminds us that it's repeated relational experiences that change how the brain wires and expects for these. So that leads us to another whole path of hope on this. And that is, as we start talking about some of these more insecure styles or less optimal patterns that we might be providing our kids, if you're a parent listening and you're thinking, and we start talking about some of these, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I do that. The Mm -hmm. good news is, is that as soon as you start changing the kinds of experiences experiences your kids have, your brain and your kids' brains start adapting and changing in better ways. So it's never too late. We can always kind of start moving in that direction. Right. Well, I love that. I think you say that you're going to, you share stories and scripts, simple strategies. So I like the fact that you're not just giving abstract concepts or, you know, this is what should be done or could be done, but rather, no, here, let's put it into practice. Because I know, like we think about, you know, everybody learns a little bit differently. And when we're trying to visualize or trying to put it into our life of figuring out, well, how does this apply? What does this actually look like? I think that's like the best way to do it, right? We can't just say, you know, just like you would learn anything else like you know how to play soccer or you know how to dance right you can't just say lift your leg like this it's better to show so I love that you're going through that methodology to be able to provide your readers with like actual practical information that they can grasp onto and to go continue with your analogy there 
the way we learn is also through lots of practice. So, you know, I often think about, like, you've probably seen that little image of, like, in Google Images or, or like, whatever, the clip art, where it's, like, a little brain with, like, little skinny arms, and it's, like, lifting weights. Yeah. Yeah. So I often think about that because, you know, the brain develops what it gets practice doing. And so, you know, every time I you know, help my kid calm down and he moves back into a state of like more regulated, like handling himself better, or I help him practice asking for something in a more respectful way. Or, you know, anytime we as parents want to like parent more respectfully or we control our temper, those are like little reps. We're lifting little weights to give our brain reps so that those that circuitry starts getting stronger. So let me just give a really specific example right out of the safe chapter of these practical things. Because everyone's like, okay, why do you have safe in there? Like, obviously, we know we have to keep our kids alive. We know we have to keep them safe. But <laughs> right. One of the things that's really important to talk about is that, so there are two really practical tips. So every chapter has like two or three takeaways. And obviously, like in our past books, we have a refrigerator sheet that has like lists all the main ideas so that you can remind yourself because otherwise it's hard to remember and practice. Um, oh, yeah, we pre-ordered it and I already tapped tapped the refrigerator oh, one. Yeah, so... <laughs> So, you know, the two practical strategies at the end of the safe chapter, the first one is first do no harm. And the second one is repair, repair, repair. So let me talk about those. So the first do no harm, why, people are like, why do you have safe in there? Well, here's why, you know, as mammals, and this is a little bit hard to talk about because I'm going to be talking about parents who are abusive or where kids are in really, you know, experiences that are very detrimental. And that is that, okay, so we have a biological instinct, right, to go to our caregiver, to our parent, let's just say in this case, when we're in, when we're terrified or when we're in distress. But what happens if your parent is the source of your terror or the source mm-hmm. of your fear? Then it creates a biological sort of paradox and an incompatible state. So you've got one circuit saying, go to your caregiver to help you stay alive. And you have another circuit that says, get the hell away from danger. Right. If your parent is the source of danger, it actually creates disorganization in the brain. And this is actually called disorganized attachment. And this is what we would see for sure in cases where parents are are terrifying and frightening. And now everybody who's listening to this is probably thinking about abuse. And of course, I'm talking about that. But what we talk about in this chapter is more micro versions of that than we would see across most homes. So let me give examples of that. One would be if you and your significant other or you and your parent who's visiting for the holidays or your, you know, your whoever, if there is a lot of screaming and shouting, fighting happening in the home, that can be terrifying for children. If you have a parent who is an alcoholic or abuses substances who can be unpredictable and frightening at times or is passed out and the child can't rouse them, those are all kinds of things that can happen, you know, in a lot of homes. Mm -hmm. And then even more generally than that, When we as parents lose our minds and we scream and yell at our kids or we lose control, that can be frightening, especially Mm -hmm. for young children. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the first strategy in this book is first do no harm. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you're going to scream and yell or you're going to yank your kid's arm too hard Mm -hmm. or you're being maybe too rough during a diaper change because you're just so frustrated, like, you know, Dan in one of his previous books called Parenting from the Inside Out, which I just love talks about sort of, you know, first aid, which is like, close your mouth, put your hands behind your back, like where you're not going to say or use your hands Mm -hmm. in ways that are disrespectful to our child, you know, little bodies. So that first one is just first do no harm. The second one, repair, repair, repair is, 
that's really hard to say through time. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> is that when we mess up and we all will do it, we will yell at our kids. We will act immature. We, you know, like in no drama discipline, I tell a story about how one of my kids when he was three, he stuck his tongue out at me and we had had this ongoing battle and like he had been hitting me and kicking me. And eventually like he stuck his tongue out and I threatened to remove a body part. I was yeah. like, if you stick that tongue out one more time, I'm going to yep. rip it out of your mouth. You know, yep. <laughs> so I threatened to remove body part, you know, and, or there are times I just act really immature. My kid, we have this, it is now referred to as the Yahtzee incident Uh-oh. because <laughs> uh, I was playing a game with them. They were probably like five, eight, and 12 or something. We were playing Yahtzee, and I don't even know what led up to it. But at some point, I ended up throwing the dice across the room. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you guys are so fun to be with. I'm so glad we did game night. You know, like I totally acted like I was an 11-year-old girl. Yeah. And, you know, within a few minutes, I caught myself and, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so sorry. I did not handle myself well there. I wish I had handled myself differently. And can you forgive me? And can we just now refer to this as the Yahtzee incident and know that we'll never do this again? You know, so that's the key is that when we mess up, it can actually be valuable as long as we repair. We go to them and we say, I didn't handle that well. I'm sorry. That was frightening for you. Or that really hurt your feelings. Or, you know, how can I make things right with you? And so we go and we repair. And when we do that, it actually creates more connection and closeness. It models for our kids Mm -hmm. how to make repairs themselves. And it allows them to have a wider window of tolerance for conflict in relationships. I mean, if your relationship with your child was perfect and lovely all the time, and then they went out into the world, like the world would be terrifying for them. So they learn then to face that challenge of like, there's conflict and we fight and I don't like how she's talking to me or how she's acting and we're not getting along right now. And I just learned it's okay. And we made it through. And so I can learn to tolerate conflict in relationships. And learning also that it's okay to feel emotions too. And it's not that it's bad to feel emotions. It's where do you take the emotions and how do you, you know, it's okay to feel angry sometimes. It's okay to feel stressed out, to feel upset, to feel mad, to feel happy. But it's how you then react. So I think that's important too, because I think a lot of people are very careful not to show too many emotions to their children, but then the children they grow up and they think, you know, I mean, the easiest example is like boys don't cry, right? But then there's right. even more so like, well, we can't get mad. And then that's when you start getting teenagers that hold everything mm-hmm. in and they don't express their feelings. And that can right. lead to very dangerous events. And or even just in normal life, even if it doesn't go disastrous, you they go out to their, you know, adult life and then that's going to affect their relationships because they don't think it's okay to express, you know what? I'm mad right now. You made me mad. Yeah. But then where do we go from here? How can we repair That's so key what you just said, because think about all the times and here's like something we're all guilty of is like our kid will express an emotion and we try to talk them out of it or we tell them they're wrong to do that. We tell them, you know, you can't do that. And they don't understand that we're like, they don't, unless we say it's okay to be mad, but it's not okay to hurt somebody. Right. When we just can't do that, they really can internalize like that's a dangerous feeling to Mm -hmm. have. And I think in our society right now, you know, we're in a mental health crisis. We truly are. The rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality among our young people is terrifyingly high in in a way we've never seen in history. And I think a piece of that, I think sleep has a lot to do with it and technology. There's a bunch of things that can go into that. That's a whole other talk. But 
I think that one of the things that has happened is this generation of parents that does so much hyper parenting where we make sure our little darlings don't have any little bumps in the road every second and we make sure that their lives are perfect and totally enriched and you know all of that the problem is i think our society has pathologized healthy human emotions so like mm-hmm. if a kid feels anxious about something they think <clears throat> wrong with them and i'm like well tell me about what you're feeling anxious about they're like well i have a test tomorrow or i have to get up and talk about you know the state of california tomorrow in an oral report i'm like oh well that's actually really good that you feel anxious because that's what your body's supposed to be telling you right. this is something that an I'm not sure how this is going to go. That's healthy. Oh, let me just, I've never told this story before. It's because it's a brand new one, but, and I actually need to write this up, but my kids, I have three boys and my youngest is 13 and his school was on lockdown last week. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah. And there was actually never any active threat on campus. There was police activity on the street right behind school. So, but I had picked up my son and his friend after school and, you know, I said, you know, do you guys want to tell me what, you know, tell me the story about what happened. And that's a strategy called name it to tame it from the whole rain child, which is where you tell the story. It actually helps integrate the emotion and Mm -hmm. the sensory experience along with like, like the words and making sense of it. So we have a coherent narrative, right? So I was like, tell me what happened. So they kind of told me what happened And they talked about how some of the kids were crying and some of the kids like just shut down and wouldn't talk at all. And I was like, well, what about you guys? What was your experience? And they talked about how they were shaking and they felt sweaty and really panicky. Yeah. And I was like, that is so awesome that your bodies did that. Do you know why? And so we started talking about how, first of all, you know, the school, they were like, well, the school overreacted. They made us all afraid when there wasn't really an active threat on campus. And I was like, I know, but isn't that awesome? Because the school overreacted to make sure you were safe. Like everyone right. knew what to do. Right, and so right. the adults knew how to keep you safe. And that's so great. I'm so proud of that was all handled. And then I was like, and for you, it's like, and so I started explaining this. When we experience that there's a threat, our bodies and our nervous systems take over in order to keep us safe. And I was like, when you're sweating or shaking and your heart's beating fast and you're feeling tension in your muscles, that is awesome. That your body knows what to do to mobilize you to help you feel safe. Right. And then I started telling them about how, like, you know, if you're a gazelle in the jungle and lion chases you and you get away and you survive, you know, they don't need to go to therapy and deal with PTSD. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, what they do is they go and lie in a safe place and they mm-hmm. actually start trembling and shaking to release all that nervous mm-hmm. system arousal mm-hmm. and then they can get up and go. So I told the boys, I was like, you know, if you need to cry a little bit or shake and sweat, just let yourself do that and thank your body. Be like, thank you, body, for taking care of me and for, you know, knowing what to do. And I was like, that was really awesome that you knew what to do. So I think just going back to that idea that, you know, having reactions and having emotions is healthy. We have to communicate that to kids. And when we give them relational experiences where they're saying, you know, oh, I'm afraid that there's a spider in my room. And we go, well, you know what? There's spiders everywhere in the world. Like you're just going to have to get used to it. Right. Uh, We dismiss it. (laughs) Yep. Or they say, you know, they're like nervous and we're like, you have nothing to be worried about. Why are you so, Mm -hmm. what about that? Like, it's not Mm -hmm. a big deal. When we give those kinds of responses, we communicate to them I'm not really interested in that. You're too overreactive. Right. Like your emotions are silly. And so they internalize that. And then when they're teenagers, they're by well by then they've learned I'm not going to share anything with her because she doesn't take it seriously. She doesn't listen. I don't feel seen. Right. I'm so curious about teens. I've been reflecting on they appear as adults 
but they are still developing that part of the brain. And I think a lot of the parents that we see, you know, that are in crisis because their child is in crisis, you know, aren't really trying to think of them as that baby, right? That this is the first experience they've had with feeling overwhelmed, with some type of anxiety in school. You know, they physically cannot get out of bed. And it's like, well, you got out of bed every other day, you know? And it's like, I think- everyone could benefit from taking a beat because that don't worry about it is a script, right? right? And not even hearing the person and just saying, I know that is scary, but let's go see, you know, where the spider went or, you know, something along those lines. And just even I've been listening to a lot of podcasts that have been talking about this. And I know we touched on it the last time too, is just what does our body do I think we think we're so evolved, right? Like, I think there's so much information on the internet. We're not really thinking about, like you said, the gazelle or whatever is just kind of writing it through. They're not psychoanalyzing their body's reaction to something. They're just like, I need to take a beat. And just you being able to explain that and acknowledge it, it's fascinating to me. I'm sure the boys were just kind of like, oh, this is, maybe it's not different because they're used to that from you. But (laughs) like, you know, hopefully that friend was like, oh, that's what my body was doing. Cool. My body was doing what it was supposed to, which probably made him feel secure. (laughs) Well, we do that with our other muscles, right? When we go and exercise, or we're playing sports or something like that. We go for a run. We need a break afterwards. We need to recover. Maybe we need to eat. Maybe we need to sit down. Mm -hmm. We know it. You know, we don't have to tell our body that we need to take a rest. Like our body knows Mm -hmm. that we need to take a rest. And so we take a rest. But I think you're right. The thought of like not doing that for our brain, which is a muscle, is, you know, a problem. If we're not resting it and we're not taking care of it, taking a beat the same way we would our other muscles. Yeah, I love that. And I think too, you know, I think, you know, this boy's mom called me and she was like, you know, he told me what you told him and how helpful it was. And it was helpful for me too. And she said, you know, what's great about that is when he goes to sleep at night and he's lying in bed and he's thinking about it and he thinks about how our emotions really take their meaning and we come to understand our emotions basically mostly from what's happening in our bodies. So if he remembers what that was like for his heart to be beating really fast and his you know, breathing really hard and feeling that fear in his body, instead of it then being linked to that was kind of traumatic, it's now linked to, wow, my body's really amazing, but it knows how to respond in a situation like that. Like the right. narrative changes mm-hmm. the meaning right. of it. And, you know, and I think, you know, the example of the teenager, you know, they're like, I'm so tired. I don't want to get up or they're not getting up. And, you know, we start yelling or we're, mm-hmm. we're like, get up, you know, you, right. you should right. have any trouble getting up to, you know, whatever with your friends <laughs> and so much better in that moment. And it works better to say, oh, it's so hard to get up. Right. I hate it when I have to get up before I'm ready. Right. And pause for a second and then say, how can I help you? Right. You know, anything I can do to help you get up. And so the assumption is you're still getting up, right? This is, and keep in mind, like providing, helping a child feel safe. Mm-hmm physically and emotionally, Mm -hmm. helping them feel seen like that moment when you're like, Oh, it's so hard to get up, then they feel understood. Right. And then you're like, how can I help? Or Mm -hmm. I'm going to make you a really yummy breakfast, or I'll fill up your water bottle for you, or, you know, I'll start the shower, whatever, anything like that, where we're, we're kind of doing that nurturing, soothing thing, you know, all of that is so much better for the relationship Mm -hmm. for sure, but it's way more effective too. Mm -hmm. It just works better. And um, so I think, you know, this is not about being permissive. When we talk about the four S's, people sometimes assume 
that this is about being permissive and just like being like, oh, you're, so, you know, like you're in a bookstore and your kid starts pulling all the books off the shelf. You're not like, oh, you're having such a hard time. You let them <laughs> right, like right. devil and knocking. Like that's not what this is about. Uh, you know, in that moment, you can say, I see you're real. You know, you would stop their little bodies. You would say, you're having such a hard time. You're so mad. I will help you and let's go calm down. And you move them away from the books and then you say, okay, now they're calm. You're like, we made a, you know, we kind of made left some distraction there. You pulled a lot of books out. Do you think we should go back up or how can we make it right? Or, you know, those kinds of things. So <laughs> we are holding kids accountable for their behavior. Did I tell the story last time about my son not wanting to get out of the bathtub? No. I don't think so. No. So, you know, this is a really quick story, but I think it's a really helpful example of the four S's in action, like in a oppositional defiant tantrum mode. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, cause like I said, it's easy to do if our kid like scrapes their knee or something, you right. know, but so my little guy, JP, he was probably five and he was total meltdown. Like it was really late. It'd been a long day. He didn't want to get into the tub. And normally I would just be like, we don't need to do, I'm not going to fight that battle. Let's just get in bed. But for some reason he had to have a bath that night. So he had a total meltdown getting into the tub. And then once he was in the tub, he had a meltdown around the idea of getting out. Okay. So this is just, no matter what's going to happen, he's melty guy. So anyway, it's time for him to get out and I'm doing all my, you know, okay, two more minutes, you know, and he starts like saying all this hilarious, like defying logic. He's like, well, you can't get me out of the bath because this isn't even a bathtub. and I'm not even oh. taking a bath right now. Like, <laughs> oh, just being, okay. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, as nasty as he can be. And he's like yelling at me or whatever. So eventually I'm like, okay, it's time to get out. Either you can get out or I'm going to help you get out. And so he doesn't get out. So, and I'm telling myself, stay calm, stay calm. Right. Need you need a safe haven. <laughs> this is going to make it worse if you start losing control. You know, and I actually like think about like my own volume dial, like turning it down. So right. Just right. Stay calm. So I try to pull his little slippery body out, you know, thing as gently as I can. And as I'm doing that, he's kicking and screaming and yelling and just, you know, I hate you, you know, just totally out of control. And as I'm pulling him out, I'm saying, I know you're so disappointed you had to get out. You didn't want to get yeah. out of the tub. Is that right? And I'm just giving him lots of empathy and that sort of scene ensues thing there. And I say, I know it's okay. And if you need to cry and yell, I'm right here with you while you're upset. Now, I'm not letting him stay in the tub. I'm still right. enforcing the boundary. And, you know, when we have boundaries and we're predictable in terms of those, it actually helps kids feel safe because they right. know what to expect. There's predictability. But we can say no to a behavior and still absolutely say yes to what our child's experience is. Right. And that's how, you know, we can say, I'm right here with you as you're upset. And I'm not saying stop crying. I'm right. saying I'm right here with you. If you need to cry and let it out, that's okay. I'm right here with you as I'm enforcing the boundary. Exactly. I feel like I've heard a lot of bath stories and different ways of yeah, people trying yeah. to get their kids out of the bath, you know, and but that is it's so counterintuitive. I'm sure for some parents that are listening, they're like, no, you're going to get your butt out of the bathtub right now, you know, and but it's just a different approach. Like you said, you know, it's not going to always happen that way. You're going to have a tough day. You're going to, you know, something's going to catch you, but it's that repair. And it's not like bath time. That's what's going to happen each and every time. Well, I'm just like, it's okay to be mad that you have to get out of the bath. Like, just because I'm saying you have to get out doesn't mean that you have to be happy Mm -hmm. about it. Because we often in life have to do things that we're not happy about. Or Mm -hmm. we have to, you know, we could have a fight with someone and then we have to go to work and we have to put on a a happy face because we have Mm -hmm. to get stuff done. And, you know, it's okay to not want to do something and it's okay to feel that way. 
That's right. And I also think too, you know, like I remember my best friend, like we were talking about this. She's like, yeah, but people don't have time to like take yeah. put their shoes on and you're going to be like, okay, well, let's talk about it. How are you feeling? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. No, yeah. It's not, you know, there are times we have to get out the door Obviously, and there are times yeah. we have to hurry our kid. And it's perfectly fine to say it's time to get your shoes on. And if your kid doesn't, obviously a good quick way to get cooperation a lot of times with little kids is with silliness like make up a weird accent and be like you can't put your shoes on because I'm wearing them today like you Mm -hmm. can use playfulness silliness if you can think of it in the moment it usually helps and works better than you know just commanding and demanding but there are moments you need to be like you need to put your shoes on we gotta go and the kid doesn't do it and you say okay well I'm grabbing your shoes we'll put them on in the car or you know whatever and you can say I know you're mad you didn't want to have to stop playing I know you're mad you don't like putting your shoes on right Mm -hmm. now and we're still doing it we gotta go but really it's the idea of you don't have to have long reflective dialogues around right. every stinking little shoe and toothbrush yeah. moment. But it's really that your kid knows without a shadow of a doubt. And I think, you know, one of the ways that's so interesting, there's this, this uh, laboratory experiment called the strange situation, which we talk about in the book, which is basically like a 12 to 18 month old in a laboratory in a, like a, a little room with some toys. And they ask the parent to get up and leave and then come back and they watch what happens and the, what, how the child responds to the parent and how that responds in this union behavior, <laughs> a good way to measure what the attachment pattern is between this parent and this child. And, you know, the babies with secure attachment, usually when the parent gets up and leaves, the babies cry. And they're upset that the parents left because they're in this strange room and they don't know what's happening. But what's cool is that when the parent comes back in the room, the baby reaches for the parent, the parent picks the baby up, the baby calms down really quickly and can return to play. And what's even more interesting is that those babies, even though they're crying, they don't have a heightened stress response. So it's almost like, so we don't see a lot of cortisol and we don't see a Mm. lot of psychophysiology that demonstrates stress. Even though they're crying, it's almost like, like, hey, don't worry, I'm just going to cry a bit. And that means she'll just come get me and it's all good. Like I'm not working. Whereas the babies, like, babies who have parents who are more like emotional deserts, they may not cry because by 12 months of age, they've already learned the best going to get out of this parent is to not my need is to not show that I have feelings or needs. And so when the parent leaves, the baby's stress hormones go way up. So they have a stress response, but they don't reach for the parent. They don't cry because they've already learned that's not going to go so well. So that would be like another kind of pattern we would see. So, you know, I think that's what's so cool is to think about how, you know, when we do provide these kinds of experiences, our kids build a really cool internal resilience where they're like, I'm not worried. Like if I have a need, if I'm really, someone's going to show up for me. Right. And now as I'm getting older and I'm choosing my friends and I'm not just going to some random play date that my mom forced me into. Like, <laughs> right. I'm choosing my friends and I'm choosing romantic partners and I'm choosing people in my life as a boss even or whatever. I'm going to choose people. I really expect people to show up and to be predictable people. And so they're going to choose those kinds of relationships. And then they're also going to be able to help themselves feel, you know, be safe, seen and soothed. And that's just one other thing I want to say quickly about the adolescent period is that, you know, things start shifting in adolescence, their attachment figures sometimes also more and more come to include peers and significant others, romantic partners. But our adolescents and our spouses and our best friends and our siblings, as adults, we all need to feel the four S's. And so, you know, with teenagers, like an example is like, let's say you have a teenager who does something really unsafe. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, you found out from a were driving too fast, or maybe they came home drunk, or, you know, they did something that was really stupid, that was risky. Right. 
what I love about the four S's is that there are moments as a parent where I'm like, I'm not really sure what the right response is. I'm not sure how to handle this, but the four S's can be my North star. Yes. So I'm going to start with that. And so, you know, when I have teenagers, when there have been risky behaviors, what happens is I sit down in the conversation and I say, you did not keep yourself safe. Right. And my number one job is to keep you safe. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure you're safe. And what that means is the parameters are coming in a little bit. You're not, you don't have as much freedom because you made a decision that didn't keep yourself safe. And I understand why you did that. I know a lot of teenagers are curious about this or they mm-hmm. try these different things or whatever it is. And so you connect there and then, you know, you really use the four S's to help you have the relationship on the front burner and the behaviors on the back burner. You know, you have to still attend those. You can't leave back burner unattended. Otherwise, it'll burn or spill over. Mm -hmm. You have to address the behaviors. But it's really your relationship first so that when you come out of a conversation like that, your child feels safe, seen, and soothed. And so they know you're going to show up for them. And And then they learn how to do that. And I remember last time you had shared that same type of, you know, your son had done something not safe. And when you were talking to him, you know, you had mentioned you were still processing how you felt, but you shared that. And you said, you know, my job is to keep you safe. And, you know, I felt that I had given you those tools, but now I have to keep you safe. So this is the, you know, and that was how you address the behavior, but you had expressed you know, that's my job and you put that at risk. So now I'm taking the reins back. And I, that stayed with me because it was so powerful in that moment, right? Because, you know, you can see when you disappoint your parent, you know, or you upset your mom and she's crying, you know, and things like that. But as a teenager, you know, you're so angry all the time. You're, but like that I thought was just such a powerful way. And having the four S's, like you said, as a guiding star, I think in any relationship, is so important yeah. and I mean this has already gone on I mean we could talk and we, we always say this forever we could, with you. dare I say we will if you <laughs> have the time apart no I'm just kidding but I think it's going to be a fascinating read for like you said any person with any of their relationships we are such social beings I think you know taking a look especially at the website obviously it has yeah. a lot of great information and we're hoping that a lot of our listeners pick it up because there's I love knowing the science behind things it just sticks in my head like oh of course you're doing skin to skin contact when your baby's born because they need a feel your warmth for regulation and all this stuff but it's also you want to snuggle with your baby you know but I know it's going to be fascinating for people to see that and if they don't like the sciencey stuff obviously you guys have such real world examples and then the reflective portion so relatable exactly to everybody not just parents so Tina Bryson thank thank you so so much for being on this part two of course course. can I leave listeners with just one final thought yes absolutely what we're talking about here like show up for your kids you know when they need you the most just show up and that it's really simple it really is it's really the one thing so if you're distracted and you're on your devices or you're checked out and overwhelmed yourself like your kids need you to show up and for those of us who might be in the more hyper parenting space where we Mm -hmm. think we have to do so much for Mm -hmm. our kids like your kids don't need all that what they really need is for you to show up and I love to talk about that as the idea of presence be present to what's happening show up in the moment and even though it's simple it's really freaking hard to do and so my the last thing I want to say to leave listeners with is you need to make sure that you have people who show up for you. Yes. You have to make sure that you have people who help you feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure mm-hmm. so that you have the resources and the capacity to be present to your own kids. So just making sure that we're taking care of ourselves so that we can do this really 
simple but difficult task to just be present with our kids and show up for them. And if there's anything that our listeners take away, you showed up to this podcast, you're already kicking butt trying to be the best parent that you can be, and that's all we can do. That's right. And this research makes you, I mean, honestly, people, like when you read this book, you're going to feel good about yourself, no matter how crappy you think you are as a parent, because this book is a welcome, generous, giving, warm invitation to not be so hard on ourselves. And the research right. supports that, you know, right. and really says you can mess up all the time and your kids can still thrive. Right. So yeah, that's an important piece. I hope you guys all pick it up. You're worth it. Thank yes. you so much for listening, everyone. And thank you again, Tina. Thanks, we'll talk y'all. to you all next week. Bye.